You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Bugs for playing us in. This is Poser, and this is the Sneaky Good Podcast. As always, in charge of everything, the ruler of this podcast, and he makes me say that or else he's going to make my voice sound like Mickey Mouse, <laughs> it's Chris. <laughs> I, I think I, I said one of the chipmunks, didn't I? Yeah, but I like the Mickey Mouse threat better. Okay. Because I, I have respect for Theodore. <laughs> yeah, I was thinking more of Chip and Dale, but... Yeah. Oh, okay. That's even worse. Yeah. And also joining us, uh, my usual compatriots, we have Seth coming from Canada. Hello, hello. And Jake coming from Maryland, making this the only LSU podcast exclusively not from Louisiana. (laughs) Mm. And this, of course, is in the aftermath of LSU finding an offense and beating Texas. And it was sweet. Did you guys have as much fun as I did? Oh, yeah. I haven't come down. I'm still high as hell from that game. I had to watch 3rd and 17 again just before we started recording. So, Yeah, I watched 3rd and 17 like four or five times. It's I, I think what I like most about that play, aside from just the overall awesomeness of it, is Joe Burrow stepping up in the pocket right there. Oh, like. Yeah. He is in midair when he throws that ball. You don't I didn't realize it when it happened. It looked like live, it looked like he just stepped up in the pocket and threw a pass. But when you watch on replay, he he had to jump up to avoid the sack and he throws this wounded duck that goes, you know, twenty five yards. Yeah, it flutters. And, ah, what a beautiful flutter. <laughs> and you know, he has to wait on everything because he knows he's getting pressured. He, you know, he sees it, it's in his face. But he can't just, like, check it down. It's third and 17. So he's got to wait and wait and wait. And he knows he's going to take a big hit. And he moves in the pocket. And he knows where Jefferson's going to be. And, it, you know, history is made. And, and what's funny is that, you know, I know there will be some talks like, well, you know, LSU at third and 17. Texas had just converted a third and 20 on the previous drive, thanks to Todd Harris committing probably the most egregious pass interference in the history yeah, of LSU football. Right. Um, he, <laughs> he, I, I mean, that was like almost like last Boy Scout levels. I think he took out a handgun. It, it was it was bad. I remember when I, I like I watched the game back and like they showed it live. I was like, oh, it's not that bad. And then they showed the replay. I'm like, ah, never mind. <laughs> <laughs> nope, he just fully just threw him down to the ground by jersey. <laughs> that was pretty bad. Yeah, I mean, I mean, what do you do? You're beat, and it, you know, it saves a touchdown. But yeah, do what you got to. But also, how do you get beat that badly on third and twenty? Yeah, there were a few rough third down. Yeah, that's that's probably the 
Yeah, the theme of the night um, outside of the offensive explosion was the questions with the defense. And really the defense's big problem was they could not get off the field. They could not get a third down stop. Uh, they were six of eight on third down conversions in the second half, uh, Texas was. And then on top of that, they also had a fourth down conversion that went for a touchdown. So that's, uh, um, looking at my notes, not good. That's the uh, official term for it. I'm hoping that obviously it wasn't good. Like I'm not trying to like spin it that it was actually good. Don't worry about it. But uh, you know, third downs can sometimes not be very sticky game to game. Definitely not year to year. I don't think, but maybe game to game. And hopefully there was just kind of an anomaly and LSU can kind of regress to the mean and, and it won't actually be an issue. Yeah. yeah I think you're, Right there. I think this game kind of took on a personality because for as much as we talk about or as I've talked about already about LSU having a problem defensively, they had a great first half defensively. And then came that third quarter where Texas had that seven minute drive to start off the second half after LSU went three and out, you know, going 19 plays, I think it was 85 yards, score a touchdown. And that's when like Five or six players cramped up. A couple guys went to the locker room. It felt like LSU's defense never fully recovered from that drive. No, they didn't. Texas scored on every every drive after that one. The defense got one stop. I mean, this was a Big 12 game. That's what it was. I mean, it was – this is what Big 12 games are like. It's, you know, whoever gets the ball last or whoever – scores a touch whoever whatever defense gets someone to kick a field goal is what gets the edge and that's what did it was that lsu managed to get because of michael divinity's sack on sam Mellinger, they managed to hold texas to one field goal and lsu came up with a touchdown that was the difference in that fourth quarter texas kicked the field goal once and lsu scored touchdowns on all drives well, LSU did kick the field. Yeah, they had the three and out. And, yeah, LSU had the, yeah. the one field goal in the third in the third quarter. But in the fourth in the fourth quarter, it was LSU touchdown, won. touchdown, touchdown, touchdown. To and then they you know kneel it out, but essentially touchdown, 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 done the game. It but it, it didn't so much feel to me. I mean, I know it does at the final analysis. It's a Big Twelve game because you know five hundred yards each. You know, for each team, each team cleared four hundred yards passing. 70 or 80 points were scored, but so much of it came in the fourth quarter. I mean, this was a game that at the half was, uh, you know, 20 to seven and yeah, the 83 points were scored, but 39 of them were scored in the fourth quarter. And it just kind of felt, it didn't so much feel like the defenses couldn't play or that you didn't have very good defenses. It just felt like the defenses cracked. You know, it was sort of like they just, you know, once, you know, in wartime, like once you, you know, take the one trench, you know, you, you just fl- you keep flowing through. It just felt like this momentum that the defense just sort of gave in, and that was it for the night. Yeah, I know that the uh, some of the offensive players like Burrow and and Cushenberry talked about after the game how, you know, after they made adjustments to Texas pressure. They felt like everything was kind of smooth after that because you know when you looked at the when I looked at the the passing attack in terms of the concepts they ran nothing really changed as the game gone on they were just able to protect Burrow just a little bit better and if you can protect the Heisman Trophy winner like that he's gonna make you pay and also it felt like you know going back to the third down thing it was 
it was how many third downs Texas had. LSU and Texas scored just about the same in the second half. It was pretty, you know, they scored on almost every drive. It was, you know, touchdown, 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 almost the whole way. Each team mixed in a field goal. But if you look at it in the second half, LSU only faced four third downs and converted two of them. Texas faced eight of them. And most of them were not of your third and one varieties. They were almost all of significant down and distance. So to me, it felt that LSU was playing better defense. They just couldn't get that third down stop, essentially. It was like LSU gets a stop, then they get another stop. It's third and 10, and then they crack on third and 10. It was a really weird defensive game. I think that's why I'm hoping that it was kind of, it was the anomaly because LSU's too talented to make a habit out of giving up third and tens for the whole season. I just don't see that happening. With that said, and Texas will be, you know, besides Alabama, it looks like Texas is going to be the best offense that they face all year. So maybe it's a part of that, you know, Sam Ellinger being a pretty good quarterback and a part of just chance or luck that I just don't see continuing throughout the rest of the year. And they'll have a chance to put it all together the next, what is it, four weeks of pretty easy slate before the SEC kind of ramps up. Do you think it could also be something as simple as Texas just did a better job hydrating everybody at halftime than we did? I think it's certainly possible. I mean, you look at the cramping issues. I know the crowd, which you know, I was in the crowd, they were not happy about it and thought LSU was just trying to slow up Texas. But you never really... I never really got that feeling because Texas wasn't really trying to play a hurry up at any point in the game. It felt like LSU players were legitimately cramping up and then they would go to the locker room. So clearly something was wrong. I mean, I know we have a couple of players that are out. I think Benny Logan is hurt. Fajoko, you know, actually had injuries, injuries, not just cramping. But you could, you know, there's the, the Orgeron thing, where, you know, we can get into this where he says... You know, we didn't have any air conditioning in the locker room. I don't think that's the important part of the story. I think the important part of the story is that players refused IVs. And this goes back to that 19-play drive. If you come out in the second half, you're not properly hydrated, then you give up a seven-and-a-half-minute drive. You just never – your body just never catches up. It's, you know, to use a cycling example, you know, term, you cracked. Mm-hmm. And once you crack, you've cracked. I think they were just finished after that. I just, I don't think there was no way really that they were going to recover from being on the field that long. I mean, the and not even just the drive. I mean, the whole thing went like half an hour. <laughs> that was basically how long it lasted. How long they're on the field in some way getting, I don't know, like one or two minute brief rest. But yeah, I just, I don't think there's any way for in that kind of heat for them really to recover from a drive like that and basically one drive kind of as you said cracked the LSU defense for the entire rest of the game yeah and then also in the fourth their first drive in the fourth quarter went six minutes it was 559 in 10 plays so they actually had one in the uh, a lesser but still a significant long drive that ate a ton of clock in the fourth quarter so yeah I do think hydration played I think those cramps I think there's one or two that weren't real. I think there was one where I forgot who it was, but they gave up a big third down. And I thought that was not so much to slow them down, but I thought that was the, I got beats. I'm going to say, oh, it was my hamstring kind of injury. 
I mean, that's kind of what I thought at first, but hearing all the talk after the game about the heat and the crampings, it felt, it felt maybe like it's, it's all real. Like, and I, so, and again, it's like, well, it has to be real. For me, it has to be real because this is not possible that the talent on LSU's defense gave up 38 points to any college football team. So, like, it ha- that there's no other explanation because they're so much better than this. So I have to, like, kind of hang my hopes on, on the cramping and the heat and just, just a long drive that just wore them out physically. And also, like, first off, I think Todd Harris had a, just a terrible game. Almost every time there was a big Texas play, Todd Harris was somehow involved. I don't want to totally single him out and say it's all his fault, but he happened to be the guy who was there for you know a lot of the big plays, and I think Texas was keying on him. He was having a bad night, and te- and that's what you do. You scheme, you find the guy having a bad night, you keep going after him until he proves he can stop you. You know, DeVarnay for Texas, let's also give him credit. He's a really good player, and he had a really good night. I think it was uh, 12 catches for 154 yards. He was almost as unstoppable as Jamar Chase was. He just had a, just a tremendous night. And sometimes guys are going to have a night like that. And I, I think we sometimes forget, you know, the other teams trying too. And then Ellinger, I don't think Ellinger had a great night, but he had a weird night. He would go from really terrible passes. And then his next pass would be in a window that was only like, seemed like only like three inches wide. So he would follow up a terrible pass with like the best pass you've ever seen. And it was just that kind of night for him. And I think that's the type of quarterback that he is. And like you said, there was some, there was some, I think one of the touchdown passes to the slot back in the end zone, right on the goal line where he fits it in between the linebacker and the safety. He did it again in the middle of the field, fitting in between the linebacker safety. There were some really, really nice throws. And there were the touchdown to Duvernay when he when he breaks it. Um, I, you know, LSU sent the house, and he was able to stand in there and throw an accurate pass. And then Duvernay breaks it open for a touchdown. Yeah, he was good. In fact, he was probably a very good in this game. And that's kind of the quarterback that he is. Part of it as well is LSU, as far as scheme goes, they misplayed how to play. And when you make a mistake in that regard and who is talented takes advantage of that's how it's going to go. I mean, they decided that they were going to make him sit in the pocket and beat them with his arm to avoid him scrambling. And A, he did. He beat them with his, I mean, he made lots of very good throws with his arm. And B, I don't think he's, to be personally, I don't think he's as good scrambling as he is like designed running, like through between, you know, the tackles when they kind of run him like that. Sort of the way, I mean, Orgeron made this comparison last week, the way that Florida kind of used to ram Tim Tebow, just like a bulldozer just right between the tackles. I think he got kind of scrambling. So when LSU brought pressure on him and they brought, you know, guys as far as the pass rush, Texas didn't really have an answer. Like Chase Hong got home once, Divinity did, Queen got there a couple times. And it worked, and like especially you know the end of the second quarter for like two drives in a row, they brought extra pressure, and Texas went quickly. You know, I don't know if it was three and out, but their drives in quickly, and then Ellis obviously capitalized offensively to build up that lead. Second half, they kind of went right back to playing it the way they in their kind of base defense, and 
that didn't work. So, I mean, it was, and even Orson admitted to this, if he could do it over again, he sent more pressure, and he should have. So when you have a very talented offense like that with the guys they do, and you make kind of that sort of mistake, and but very good QB punishes you, then, yeah, that's going to happen as well. And I think that also kind of explains their numbers because, I mean, this was a team, Texas kind of went, as I said, they got stopped, they got stopped, and then would convert third and 10. And if you look at it from the defensive standpoint, they brought pressure, they brought pressure, and then on third and 10, okay, we're not going to bring the house because we're playing safety because we're just trying to keep everybody in front of us. And then Texas would get 12 yards. So, because it's really, I don't think they... Orgeron and Aranda ever really committed to blitzing heavily on third and 10. And I'm not really sure they should have. I just think sometimes you have to say, hey, those are the places you're supposed to play conservatively. And it was just that, you know, Ellinger, to his credit, made plays then. I think, and Orgeron said this a couple of days ago or yesterday, that they kind of did some sort of mush rush against Ellinger to keep him in the pocket. So they didn't, they, you know, they rushed three in like a half rush, and then they tried to just let Chase on Do's thing on the outside. By the way, the two Texas tackles played very well because mm-hmm. Chase on really had nothing besides a nice little stunt um, game they played to get him free. So they did that little mush, ru- mush rush, but they didn't really come with a blitz blitz very often. The one I can think of is the is the Duvernay long touchdown that was on a that was on a blitz. But besides that, so it's almost like they were like caught in the middle, where they didn't have a real just a straight four man rush that really wasn't going. But they didn't want to blitz anybody because they were afraid of getting burned on the blitz. But then you know their their must rush and playing coverage, it just gave them too much time. Yeah, and I think Fulton not being a hundred percent really played into that. Um, I think also Fulton got caught on a pass interference call that upon rewatch looked pretty shaky, but he was, fa- I can see why they called it. He was falling down, but it looked like good coverage and, you know, they bailed, bailed him out with a flag. Um, so when one of your top corners isn't really perform, isn't really performing as well as he can, um, you have a safety out there who's not having his best game, um, Stevens, I like a lot of Stevens' games, but Stevens is, isn't great in man coverage. Um, he had a lot of tackles. He kept guys in front of him, but guys were getting catches on him. They weren't breaking it. Uh, but upon saying that, can we talk about how awesome Derek Stingley is? Can, can we? I mean, that much awesomeness, can we talk about it? I mean, good <sighs> lord. I mean, my god. I mean, he's he's already our best corner. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah I mean, i've never in, seen anyone like him before i mean in person it was so clear that they were identifying where he was on the line of scrimmage and just saying okay we're just not throwing to that guy after about the second quarter i think they just stopped trying to pass on stingley it was it was amazing that guy had blanket coverage all night it, such a great game people kind of focused on Christian, how Christian Fulton sort of struggled, and he some some ways like he had like well he got beat sometimes a bit in a kind of obvious ways like the one touchdown and then but it I, I actually mostly thought he was all right but the reason that they went to Christian Fulton was because they put their best wide receiver Colin Johnson on Stingley and he couldn't get past him 
Colin Johnson had, when he was matched up with Derek Stingley, had nothing, just absolutely nothing. And when Texas targeted Derek Stingley, they had two completions to a running back, which essentially means basically that Stingley just happened to be the guy who was in that area when they, you know, played zone. Just nothing. Three catches for Colin Johnson for 49 yards. He's Texas's best receiver. And when he was matched up on Stingley, just nothing. Completely taken out of the game. This is his second career game on the road against <laughs> a top 10 team. And he just completely blanketed everybody they put in him. Now, you can tell this is an LSU podcast because the final score was 45 to 38, and we have spent the entire time <laughs> talking about the defense. So, <laughs> so let's brand. switch gears. Yeah, just on brand. We know we know what you come for for LSU. For You come for defense. But that offensive explosion, it wasn't just the second half explosion where, you know, where Jake said where they went touchdown, touchdown, touchdown in the third quarter, in the fourth quarter. It was scoring twice in the final two minutes of the first half, and it really felt at that point that LSU had a chance to really put their foot on the neck of Texas and put this game away. If they can convert that third and two on the opening drive of the third quarter, I think we're having a totally different discussion right now because I think LSU drives down the field, scores a touchdown, and Texas basically gives up. It was that close to being a blowout. All I can, like all I can really like think of is I don't know if it was like last week or it might have been a couple weeks ago. Like I said, like LSU didn't need Joe Burrow to be a top ten QB. They needed him to be great, but they needed elite. And I wasn't sure if he was totally capable of that. And then he went out there and played like the best quarterback in the country. It's just I mean it was just staggering. I can't remember the last thing remotely comparable to this from an LSU quarterback that I can think of was Zach Mettenberger against Georgia. And even then, even then, as great as he was in that game, he missed a few times, including on, you know, kind of the last drive of that game. Joe Burrow didn't miss all night. There wasn't one moment where... It really felt like he missed, especially, I mean, in that second half. I mean, it's like, yeah, I mean, that the last drive of the first half, seeing LSU go three plays on like 26-something seconds for a touchdown was ridiculous. I mean, yeah, it's like he's one of the 10 best QBs in the country at, at, le- at minimum. Honestly, so far he's been, you know, statistically he's only behind like Jalen Hurts. It feels like it dramatically changes. I mean, not dramatically, but changes the ceiling of this team. If like our expectation of him was, oh, you know, we want him to get to like 3,500 yards and 20 something touchdowns. If he could take that next step, LSU's golden. And it's like he's on pace to hit 3,000 yards by like week seven. (laughs) (laughs) I mean. So, and looking at the teams on the schedule for the next month, not outside the realm of possibility. Yeah, I mean, he's had 12 incompletions and in two games and nine touchdowns. 31 of 39 for 471 yards and just incomplete 
complete control the entire game. I mean, he knew where he wanted to go with the ball. He got it there, put it on the money. I mean, some of those throws were just terrific. It's just, yeah. Here's the crazy thing. He finished the game 31 for 39 with 471 yards and four touchdowns, all right? He started the game three for six <laughs> with an interception and 40 for 46 yards. If you would have looked at just his first quarter, you're like, yeah, LSU's in for a long night. And after that interception, which really wasn't his fault, it got tipped and, you know, stuff like that happens, he was basically perfect for the rest of the night. I thought one of the interesting things was, even though he does start three for six, in the first quarter he was able to use his legs, even though maybe he misses an open receiver, maybe he, uh, you know, he gets pressured or whatever. There was a first down that he picks up where he gets pressured. He'll have that. But the nice thing is that it's not... Because I, I called it, like, I, I knew that Texas was going to give a lot of quarterback design runs to Ellinger. And I thought, you know, and a lot of this is based on the Texas a and game from last year. I was like, all right, well, if they're going to give Ellinger 15, maybe LSU, if it's going to be a battle like that, maybe LSU gives Burrow 10. So, like, he has it in him to be a runner. But now he, can, he, he only needs to use it on these kind of special situations and pick up first downs with his legs when... Things break down in front of him instead of him being uh, a runner at quarterback. Like I, th- like I really thought this was going to be a big part of all the game plans throughout the year was to use him as a runner, just like the Texas A&M game. But guess what? He is incredible now. He's so good. Yeah, it was it was amazing. I mean, I've always kind of said like the Georgia game. You saw the light go on. The light came on in the second quarter of this game. I don't know. I think it was after that interception. He went to the sideline and decided, I- I'm not going to do that anymore. I- I'm just going to be great. And also, he was he was put in the bad situations. I mean, you know, he's thrown from out of his own end zone. Even then, he comes back in because LSU gets the defensive stop on the goal line. He's, he's on his two-yard line, and he throws a, a nine-yard out to Jefferson to get a first down. I mean, that was – a clutch pass just to get out of the shadow of your own end zone. The, the interception, he makes the right read on the play. It gets tipped, like you said. It, these things happen. LSU, um, it, this is the Louisiana State University fighting Tigers, on their own two-yard line, went empty on third and nine. And they got a guy open. You know, Chase is, Chase is open on the play, and Burrow is throwing the ball to him. And it's a first down, and then unfortunately, you know, things happen. It's not the end of the world. They're doing stuff that, and you know, like what I'll say is like they've all they've done. It's not like this is the first time in the history of of LSU football that they went empty. It's not like it's the first time that they've ran hurry up. It's not the first time that they've ran an RPO. But this is what the offense is now, and I think that's the most exciting part. Yeah, I think it was that mental thing. I know they've talked about the story a bunch of times with four minutes left in the game. It's a one-score game, and Orgeron turns to E and says, hey, are we going to run the four-minute offense? And Ensminger's like, no, we're, we're going to score more points. So as much as we talk about the Brady influence, it's still, you know, Ensminger's still the offensive coordinator. He's the guy who has to say, we're going to attack, and we attacked. And that gets back into watching the third and 17 to, Jer- you know, Justin Jefferson again. 
so much fun. <laughs> I just like think back Herbie, like before the play is don't you kind of have to run it third and 17? Don't you have to run it and like make them use a timeout? Like I know you've, you know, gone past like so often and it's awesome, but like, don't you just kind of have to run it here? Third and 17 is a really hard ask. And it's like, no, no, throw it and get a touchdown. <laughs> Yeah, it's like I mean, even if they hadn't like got a touchdown, it was still a first down. Yeah, yeah, the like, first down. It, it was like a first, even if he hadn't broken it for the whole thing, it was still yeah, a first down. He so ran like, like a a 19-yard route. It was perfect. You know, it was like he was just beyond the sticks. You could tell as soon as he caught it, it was a first down, and that was the game-winning pass. And then he just broke it for a touchdown. That was just all Lanyap. I thought in the Georgia Southern game that I was like, okay, yeah, it's Georgia Southern. There's people, there's open receivers everywhere, but Burrow put the ball in their hands on every throw against Georgia Southern. And it reminded me of like, I don't want, maybe I should be making this comparison, but you know, the past two number one overall picks coming out of Oklahoma, everyone said, oh yeah, well, Lincoln Riley, he's so good. He gets people open. But when you, you when you dug into it, you found that Baker and Kyler Murray even when people were open, they kept the ball. They kept the receiver in stride. They didn't throw it behind him, yada, yada, yada. So I was like, all right, well, you know, maybe, you know, he did it against Georgia Southern. And it kind of got me thinking, like, oh, well, maybe this is the borough that we're getting. And then that is exactly what the borough we had on Saturday night. I, I, name, me, name me the inaccurate. There was, some, there was a couple of bad reads and a couple of times maybe that he should have thrown a route that he didn't. But in terms of just throwing the ball not to the right spot, I mean, there's one he throws to chase down the sideline where he's kind of getting pressured. Um, he just throws it out of bounds. There's the one that's a catch by Thaddeus Moss uh, that's a little behind Moss. And there's... Well, you guys got anything else? I think on the very last drive, uh, he threw a deep route on first and 10, and Jefferson was probably covered, but he overthrew it. So that was set up second and 10 and then the sack. But right. yeah, even then, he missed in the right place, if that makes any sense. Right, because, yeah, exactly. Because, you know, he, he led the guy too much. And also what's interesting, because I know you're talking about, you know, Burrow being great. I, I thought Jamar Chase was just incredible, unstoppable all night. But I know we had talked about this before. You know, you have all these options and that's really great. And, you know, these receivers. But who's the guy? Like, when the chips are down, who do you hit? You know, who do you target, you know, to make the big play? And we now know because his last three completions, Justin Jefferson, Justin Jefferson, Justin Jefferson. Jamar Chase, I think, is the most talented receiver we have. I just think he's just absurdly good. But that said, when the chips are down, Burrow is looking for Justin Jefferson. That is his security blanket. He's the guy who makes those big plays. And that's what you want to see out of your upperclassmen. One of the cool things is how they used each different receiver. Chase is, because they moved Jefferson to the slot, that means Chase is, you know, what, what we call the X receiver, the backside. You know, LSU goes trips a lot this year. So he's the back, he's isolated. And you saw a bunch of times, you know, the, the, when he mossed the number three on, on Texas, like that's a one-on-one throw. And he went out there and made it. And there was a couple like, you know, maybe uh, like a six-yard out route. That's him. They could have a run play called. This is kind of where the RPO stuff comes in. They could have a run play called. But if he likes the matchup one-on-one on the backside, 
bang, you got six yards. You saw a couple times that I thought was really cool was Texas pressured and Burrow stood in there, got to the end of his drop, delivered right before Chase was out of his break and they were able to connect. So that is what they want Chase to do. And then Jefferson from the slot, it was all about getting the matchup on the safety and then running away from him. So you saw time and time again that what you know he referred to and what most people call it a deep over route. So just get behind the linebackers, climb to 18 yards on the opposite sideline. And he caught, I think, three or four like that. Third and 17 is a deep over route. It was against cover zero, but the same thing. And then you have the Z receiver of Marshall, where it's just like kind of like that. The oh, okay, well now everyone wants to cover the top two guys, and we have concepts where we know that if that happens, and our quarterback is good enough, and that's an important factor, the quarterback having to be good enough to get through his progressions. Well, we know we have such a talented receiver coming on the backside on a post, like on the touchdown, and there was a few times where. You know, Jefferson runs the deep over, Texas covers it, and then who's there running the route behind them? It's Marshall for 15 yards to 20 yards. Uh, it's just, they, they've really, that, that's really, an, like, it feels like an NFL influence from Joe Brady, and it's just, it's beautiful, really beautiful. Yeah, Terrence Marshall, you know, just quietly had a great night. He was targeted six times. First down, first down, first down, first down, touchdown first down talk about production so, yeah so pretty good not a bad night and that was our number three receiver yeah uh, i think something that's interesting that i noticed kind of just hit me um during the rewatch of, sorry of the game todd orlando and dave aranda run very similar defenses and that could have played a part in why the scoring was so high because these teams see the same coverages and the same fronts throughout, you know, all the spring, all the summer, you know, for the past three years in LSU's case. So something that I've noticed that, that teams have beaten LSU with is exactly what LSU was able to beat Texas with uh, on Saturday, which is play action, hold the linebackers and then get that deep over route that I was talking about, especially on early downs. You know, I remember Miami doing it to Aranda. I remember some other teams doing it to Aranda. So now they get to see Aranda's defense, you know, give or take. And that now all of a sudden, oh, we're rolling because we've seen this before. We don't have to make that many adjustments. We're just rolling, rolling, rolling. On the other side, maybe that's why Texas had, had that much success because they also see the same defense in practice every day. And I think another reason that, you know, the play action was working, and I think an underrated part of this offense was Clyde Edwards-Hilaire. When I was watching the game from the stands, it didn't seem like he was having a very good night. I was just like, why are we ever running the ball? I mean, I know you do it to keep him honest, but he's not doing anything. And then I get home and I check the box score. He has 15 carries for 87 yards. He topped 100 uh, all-purpose yards. And then just look at the rewatch. He had some tough runs. I mean, between the tackles, he took a beating. And you need that out of your number one back. And he honestly kind of kept Emery on the bench. He had some good uh, blitz pickups as well. The third and 17 one was a big one, but there were a few other ones where he did a really good job taking out the blitz. Yeah, I mean, he had a 
really solid game. When he had 25.8 yards per pop is really good. You know, when it just seemed like whenever they kind of needed a run to kind of just, you know, mix things up a bit, change it up, you know, because they had, you know, kind of gone pass heavy, gave it to him, and they didn't really suffer for it at all. He had, obviously, you know, the touchdown run, um, and then he had, you know, one or two other ones where he also, you know, I think it was kind of early in the uh, first half. There were some really good runs, but, yeah, he had a good game. And, I mean, you can tell, like, how much Burrow trusts him, you know, in terms of getting them the ball, because there were a few times that, you know, I, mean, I guess going back to kind of Burrow, like, maybe misreads or whatever, like, the one where Edwards either got blown up on, like, third yeah, whatever, um, he locked onto him, even though we, you know, we had Jefferson, like, open on, a, like, a crossing pattern, which, so, you know, misread, but still it like, shows that, you know, on a third down, he was perfectly fine with going to Edward Zeller and trusting that he can get him the ball out of the backfield and he'll pick up the, you know, the yardage. So they clearly have a lot of trust in, in this offense. I think the, the pass protection is what keeps them on the field almost more than the the running ability. I don't know how you guys feel, but I, I, I do like him and he's really kind of perfect for this offense, but, and maybe you know, just years of, ex- of, of, of experience and watching LSU with a true bell cow of a running back that you felt like, oh, you know, maybe if that was one of the five stars uh, of the past or one of the five stars that's on the team now, that maybe he, it, he breaks it and then it's a bigger run. I don't know if you guys felt that. That's kind of what I felt about, about 22. Yeah, there were a couple of times where I thought, even on rewatch, I was like, Emery you know, as a five-star talent, I think could have broken a run or two that, you know, Edwards Hilaire didn't break. But I do think the blitz pick pickup, you guys are right. That's definitely a big part of why he's playing. Also, he's reliable. He's not going to be a guy who fumbles. Yeah. And uh, in a game like this, you could not turn the ball over. And I don't think they wanted to risk that. I still think we're going to see Emery later on in the year. I just think this game was just – it. they didn't want to have the risk of it being too big for the for the freshman. Um. And I think since Edwards Hilaire was producing in a way that they needed him to, there was no need to look at the bench. Because while it would have been nice to have some 20-yard runs, he was still picking up, you know, four, five, six yards on every carry. So why get greedy? Yeah, and, and you know, the the young guys will have their chances of over the next few weeks, over the next month, to get a lot of reps, get a lot of game reps, and, and be ready for the – for the, you know, the Auburn, Florida, Bama uh, stretch. One thing that I liked was we had so many guys who contributed it in small ways, right? That maybe not didn't show up on the stat sheets that were, we've been talking about. When, you know, my, my parents were in town uh, for the weekend. My dad and I were watching the game together. One thing I pointed out to him was, was on uh, Clyde's touchdown. Racing math just totally opened up that side for Clyde to waltz yeah. right on in. And it was just like little things like that. I pointed that out to my dad. I said, watch this block on the replay. And it was incredible. So one of the things I noticed sometimes, so that was part of their trips package that if you go on the website on the Balashik, you will read about my thoughts on that formation that LSU ran a lot of. So on the backside, like I said, they had like Chase as the X receiver. And a lot of times they would give him a route. And I was like, hey, if, if, if Burrow likes it, he'll just throw the route and kind of screw the run play. But a lot of times they put Racing McMath out there 
And you see the difference when Chase is told to block and when Racy McMath is told to block. There's a big difference. Yeah, I, I, I noticed that in the stadium. You could tell who was on if they put a guy all the way on the edge that wasn't Chase or Marshall. Sometimes when it wasn't Racy McMath, Thaddeus Moss was lining up as our outside wide receiver. And pretty much everyone in the stadium, even the Texas fans, picked up on that. They're like, hey – I think they're going to go with a screen pass here because <laughs> that guy's there to block. And then later on, you know, they then would go to, they went to Moss for, like, I think like a 15 yard pass. So they used the tendency against them. So I think even once they started showing a tendency, they went against type, which is just a great use of the playbook. I, I didn't see the snap count, but does it feel to you guys like we're seeing a shift away from Steven Sullivan and more into Thaddeus Moss? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think Thaddeus Moss has just locked down the job. Yeah, me too. I mean, he's already got like you know. I mean, most like LSU tight ends. Well, you know, we've just been frustrated so often by the lack of use of tight end. I mean, he's got three catches, seventy-six yards already. It's not like amazing, but it's still like, obvious that he's been like featured. Like, I mean, it's clear that like there are definitely like efforts to get him the ball that you know. When you really kind of remember, like, LSU, like, in the Georgia Southern game when they made that pass to him down the sideline and then late in the third quarter going to him for a first-down pickup, LSU just really targeting tight end like that in a key spot. Yeah, the the one against Georgia Southern is interesting because it's, like, 12-yard out and up by a tight end. that We haven't had a guy who they've liked enough to be able to do that in a yeah. while. Yeah, I don't even remember seeing Sullivan on the field. I'm sure he played. He, he did. A, it was a bit, but he, you know, it was. Um, he second. It was the Thaddeus Moss show. It really was. And and Moss had he only had one catch, but he was involved. Moss was a guy you noticed even when he wasn't making catches. So yeah. So the 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 big plays like I was talking about. So they are running that play action and then deep over to Justin Jefferson. He's in, he's blocking on them. So that 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 made up a big. Po- big chunk of the passing yards was that particular play. And because they wanted to make it look like their duo run, he had to block. He had to stay in and make it look like a run play. So he doesn't really get out on the pass play, but he's, that's a big part of what LSU was doing. And he had to be there and do his, you know, do his job to free up the other two, other three receivers. So, so any final thoughts on the LSU Texas game? LSU only punted twice. Twice, God, an, L- an LSU team only punted twice, and both in the first, and only in one after the third quarter. That first drive of the third quarter, never again after that. Yep. I just think, I mean, a like that. I mean, how nuts it is to me that on the road against a top ten team. Like, how many games have we seen um, where it felt like LSU asked the defense to get two or three stops? Because they'd get the ball back late in the game, four or five minutes left, or seven or eight minutes left. And you go run, run, pass, punt. Defense gets a stop, get it back. All right, let's finish it off this time. Again, run, run, pass, punt. Maybe they'll get one first down, but they can't get two. And it's like we're just kind of scraping, trying to get by. And this game, well, I guess, was similar to that. But to see an LSU offense go touchdown, touchdown touchdown to end the game on the road against a top 10 team was just crazy like it it, it really was 
you know, end of the first half is just like, you know, you're thinking, oh, we got how much this much time left, plenty of time to, you know, maybe get something. Let's see what they do here. And then it's like bang, bang, bang. All right, we're in the end zone. I mean, I mean, the other thing about the receivers, like hoping, like you know, Justin Jefferson was, I said, but you know, we were thinking, well, if he could replicate that, it'd be the team would probably be better if Chase or maybe Marshall was putting up better numbers. And it's so far. Justin Jefferson is still putting up the best numbers on the team. And it's not because Chase and Marshall haven't taken that next step that we wanted them to. They have. They've both been awesome. It's just that this guy's still just really good. And he's still putting up huge numbers. And it's LSU's got a fantastic wideout group. Probably their best in, I don't know, what, 12 years since, what, early you said, Dwayne Bow and those guys, which is 12, 13 years ago. And it's wild. Seth? I'm going to keep it simple. If Joe Burrow, if, if this is the Joe Burrow that we're getting for the rest of the year, we can beat anyone in the country. That's pretty simple. I, I think what I take away from the game is it took a tailgating experience that was really civil and nice. And it was kind of like, ah, whoever wins wins kind of attitude between the two fan bases. I think everyone was, it was a very, it was too hot to be aggressive. Mm -hmm. So it was a very chill environment before the game between everybody. And even walking out of the stadium, there wasn't a whole lot of, no one was singing, Hey, fighting tigers or no LSU chants. There was no tiger bait chants. Even the LSU fans were just exhausted and happy to get out of there but with 24 hours to think about it, uh, Texas, it hurt. And they've been really mad since then. And I think that speaks <laughs> to how tough of a loss this was. I don't think they were expecting this game to hurt as much because going into it, they didn't ex- we weren't expecting this great of a game. I don't think anybody I mean, everyone was expecting a good game, but a great game when you lose it, no matter how well you played, it still hurts. And I think it's kind of spun back around. It was such a good game that they went from being, oh, wow, we played a really good game. We're going to be a really good team to, I can't believe we lost that. And they're angry and lashing out. And that is delicious from my standpoint. And I I think LSU should just kind of not engage in this. And I think when Texas comes to LSU, we should give them great seats like we always do to our opponents. We should put them <laughs> behind the gates when they come, you know, you know, when their team runs out, you know, we should have the fluffiest of towels in the locker room, you know, <laughs> you know, water chilled to precisely like, you know, you know, 32 degrees. So it's not quite freezing, but still delicious and cold. I, I think you should pull out all the stops. I think that's how you respond to all this mess, which doesn't matter, but is still really, really fun. And is what makes college football great. Just these little fights afterwards are actually kind of what makes the sports great, even though, yes, it's really stupid. And I honestly don't care. <laughs> the, the one thing I would add to that is that you do all those things, but then the, the subtle knife between the ribs would be if we were still parking Mike's trailer outside the visiting locker room. That would just be icing on the cake. But. Yeah, we can't do that. But what yeah, we can do, do is anymore. turn their – we could turn their air conditioning down to like 50 <laughs> degrees. <laughs> like just make the locker room like really cold. Um, <laughs> but yeah, like 
I don't think that stuff matters. I don't think it pl- played any real role in the game, but it is fun in the aftermath because that's what gets fans mad and gets them talking. I mean, Joe Burrow waving to the crowd, you know, Clyde Edwards Hilaire doing the horns down. You know, that's important stuff. You, you, you need that stuff to happen. You know, the one thing I'm going to take away from this was this was a record-breaking night for this program, and it was against Texas. It wasn't against a cupcake team. We had, we had three receivers go over 100 yards in receiving for the first time ever in school history. We didn't have an individual 100-yard rusher, but we had over 100 yards rushing by committee between Edward Solaire, Fournette, and Joe Burrow. And that's never happened before in school history combined with the three receivers. We didn't do it against a cupcake like Northwestern State. We did it against Texas. In Texas. In Texas, right. And with that... 471 passing. Four touchdowns. A DKR stadium record by one yard. So, knocks off Colt McCoy's record in the stadium. But, unfortunately, we have more games. Like, the season doesn't end right there. (laughs) Like, they don't just hand us an after champion for that. So... We move on to Northwestern State, and here is our Northwestern State preview. We're really good, and they're really bad. Anyone disagree? <laughs> I got nothing. All right, let's look. It, 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 it does feel cool to know that they're going to put up 50 points, you know? Like, yeah. I mean, it's – I don't know. Maybe, like, I guess – maybe there will be a bit of a letdown after the Texas game, and, you know, like maybe they'll rest some guys. But still, this offense is – effortless so far and they're gonna just drop 50 points again because yeah they're really really good that's that's it's much much nicer than the days where it was like "Eh, well you know i'd like to see you know us hit 40 on this cupcake so with that we'll move on to the rest of the sec this weekend which is also having a down week i don't know why everyone else is taking the week off you know lsu played texas you know they're entitled to a cupcake but everyone else seems to be taking a light one. But we'll start. Uh, Kansas State is playing Mississippi State in Starkville. So the Little Apple versus Stark Vegas. Will this be an embarrassing loss for the SEC? I'm trying to see what Kansas State has done so far this year. They destroyed Bowling Green last weekend. 52 nothing. Wow. I don't know. You know, Kansas State, new head coach, first year. They were not very good last year um they went to five and seven i think mississippi state should win this game it might depend on the quarterback because if stevens isn't playing that changes things a little bit it really does is he is he hurt or uh i feel good mississippi state quarterback tommy stevens updates injury injury status there's your there's your quote hmm. Yeah, the, the injury bug at quarterback seems to really be going around the SEC. Kentucky has lost their quarterback now. Mississippi State probably going to play, but still having some problems there. And to segue into another game, South Carolina, Bentley is officially out for the year, and now South Carolina is going to host Alabama. Next. So the question is, how many points is South, <laughs> South Carolina going to lose by? Uh, a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot. And that is the CBS game. Like, this is yeah. the game. That, you know, actually, it's not the CBS game. Uh, yeah. I think it is, yeah. Yeah, no, yeah. that's the CBS game. It's a 2.30 game. Yeah. Alabama, uh, South Carolina. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It's a 3.30 game, okay? 
Oh yeah, yeah. Sorry, East East Coast guy. We live in God's time zone. All right. <laughs> Hitlinski was a very highly touted recruit. This is a guy who's you know out of high school he was four star recruit. He was the number two pro style QB in his class. So he was higher rated than. Um, to his brother, who was, you know, a highly rated recruit. He was only behind OU's uh, Spencer Rattler. So, like, he was a very highly rated recruit. He played really well last week, 282 yards, completed 80% of his passes. Yes, it was whatever, Charleston Southern, you know. So, I, I don't know, like, maybe he is, like, really good. I, I mean, you wouldn't be – I don't know if it – I don't know if it'd be, like, the biggest shot. I mean, that doesn't mean that, like, he's going to, like, lead them to victory against Alabama or anything, but – Still, I mean, it's, I don't know, I kind of got the feeling maybe it won't hurt South Carolina as badly as, you know, if, like, they were replacing Bentley with, I don't know, QB, he was, like, a third or fourth year guy who was just, like, not very good. But, yeah, as far as this game goes, yeah, Bama's going to win by, like, 35 or 40, probably. And I think with Alabama, I'm still in the, until they only beat an inferior opponent by 21, then I'm going to pick them to win by 35. Yeah, what did they win by last week? And I know they didn't cover. I think they won by like 52 points. They won by 52 points. And did not cover because it was a 55-point spread. Just think about that. that. That's just... They're still Alabama. Like, we can be confident and talk about how great this season's gone so far for LSU. This was a huge win. But Alabama is still Alabama. Yeah. They, they look scored on like, their first play from scrimmage or something like which they seem to have done like four or five times in the last like year. Yeah, you know, I mean, it's like ridiculous. Jerry Judy only is averaging like thirteen point three yards per catch, which is not bad, but oddly kind of low for him. So, well, there's hope for all of us. Yeah, <laughs> and I don't know, really, it's just, it was just a bit weird, but no, I mean, like, yeah, I mean, they scored like what after that like bad, I mean, bad by their standards. Um, first half against Duke where they scored, I don't know how many they scored, like 14 or 17 or something in the first half against Duke. They've scored, like, I don't know, like 92 points in their last <laughs> three halves or something, which is ridiculous. Yeah, so no, I think the line's what? Like, they're like a 35-point favorite? Something crazy. I, I haven't yeah, even checked you know, what it is. Ridiculous when you really think about it. Like, no. The game of the week in the SEC is Florida versus Kentucky. Um, and I think that says everything you need to know about the SEC slate this week. We're on week three. We should start. We should have good games by now. Like, this is kind of ridiculous. And Philippe Franks right now is playing exactly to form. Uh, he had a poor game against Miami, but still found a way to win. And then against Tennessee Martin, went 25 for 27 for 270 yards. And that is peak Philippe Franks going 92, completing 92% of his passes against a horribly outmatched opponent. Yeah. And fortunately Kentucky comes in, not the same Kentucky team that beat them last year. Yeah. Kentucky lost. They were, they weren't the same team already. And then they lost. Yeah, exactly. Poor Kentucky. Yeah, um, it, it's not looking good for Kentucky. They they lost their best player on both sides of the ball. 
Uh, now they've lost their quarterback. I don't think we're going to start another 30-year losing streak, but I do think they're staring down the barrel of another losing streak. Yeah. You know, their own line isn't bad. They had a couple OSEC guys on that old line, so maybe they can kind of hold up against the Florida you know, defensive line a bit. They're playing home, so if they get the crowd into it, if, if, if they can make the game ugly, I think they have a chance – you know, to pull off a miracle. And Florida's only eight and a half point favorite. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Which says everything you need to know about Florida. Yeah. Like, I think this will tell us a bit about Florida. I mean, if Florida is scraping by in this one, 23, 10, 24, 13, something like that. Don't think that bodes well for Florida when they get to LSU, Georgia, maybe even Auburn. Like, now, if, if they are able to, you know, put the boots to them, then yeah, maybe that. Yeah, maybe maybe they are a top tier team, but right yeah, now, yeah, right. right now I do have them on the second tier. You know, yeah. probably with you know Auburn and A and M right now, and all three of those teams are kind of looking to get up to that Bama, Georgia, and I think now it's fair to put LSU on that tier with those two teams. Do we think? Yeah, like, speaking of losing streaks, do we think Tennessee can pull off the upset against Chattanooga this weekend? <laughs> <laughs> Man. <laughs> Phil, Phil Farmer's going to be back in the saddle by the time they get to Tuscaloosa. Yeah, we're going to talk about that in happen. questions. Uh, oh, really? wow. I mean, just the only guy I really feel bad for is Jawan Jennings, who I really think is a great player. He has 11 receptions for 196 yards, so he's averaging about 100 yards per game. And he's on an 0-2 team. He's never going to play for a good team. He deserves better. Everyone else, they can rot. Uh, um, that. They're going to beat Chattanooga, but, Mike, I, I wouldn't bet anything on it. I mean, after those first two games. No, I mean, at this point, it's a, a coach getting fired after two years, unless something, like, weird happens. I don't know, like, he does something, like, bad. Generally doesn't happen. But I'm almost certain Jeremy Pruitt is gone by yeah. October. I mean, like, they might win this week. They're going to lose to Florida. They're going to lose to Georgia. I, they're going to lose to Mississippi State, too. And they're going to be one and five going to Alabama. In which case, I don't know, maybe former like, decides he'll wait until after the Alabama game. But like, this is a team that's probably winning two games this year. And I, and I just do not see Pruitt making it out of the year. Like, I, I, I think he's gone after. And that just, I mean, that'd be, like one, that'd be one of the all-time worst SEC coaching tenures if he's done in, like, October. I think the only way he survives through October is just because they don't want to hire someone midseason, and they don't want to pay another buyout. Like they're just, they're just waiting, waiting out the buyout. But yeah, I, I cannot see him coaching this team next year. Yeah, no, I'm I'm in agreement. But I, I I always wonder about these type of coaching disasters. You know, you look at what Taggart is going through in Florida State. And the Florida State thing, it seems so obvious that Jimbo left that cupboard completely bare and it was going to take more than two years. And I kind of feel like the same way with, with Pruitt where it's like, okay, maybe it wasn't as bad as it is now, but they're, you know, changing the scheme, doing this, you know, they brought in all the Alabama guys, you know, the D.C. is not from Alabama too. Uh, they bring in Cheney. They get, it probably needs more time, except it's been so bad that he won't get more time, and it doesn't mean he's a bad coach per se. Yeah, I mean, I think you can come into a bad situation. You can blame some of it on the previous guy, but 
sometimes you're making it worse too. And I, I mean, I just don't see how it's one thing if Pruitt was losing to pretty good teams. I, I mean, he, who did he lose to week one? I, 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 Georgia, I've already, State. Georgia State. I mean, he lost to Georgia State. If he had just lost to BYU, I think, you know, people would be making fun of him, but you could say, okay, there's a long term plan. Or Willie Taggart at Florida State. Yeah, like, Taggart is it's, it's like sort of very. Like, they lost the good teams last year. But also, like, Taggart, like, blaming I mean, the strength and conditioning coach. Yeah, that's no, just a bad look. Like, that's yeah, the kind of thing that there, but. you're making a bad situation, an already bad situation worse. How are you making it better? So, yes, I think Jembo left the cupboard bare, but Taggart is not improving the situation. Right. Yeah, but I mean, I, yeah, I, I do think like when you look at some of the teams like they lost to, they lost to Syracuse, they lost to Clemson, they lost to Notre Dame, they lost to Florida, they lost to NC State, who was a good team. You know, it's like it wasn't like they were losing to. And now like week one, I mean, now if they lost to Louisiana Monroe, like that would have been. Yeah. And then week one, they lost to Boise State. How they lost, yes, not good. But Boise State is a good team. Yes. Um, so, I mean, but Pruitt coming out here losing to Georgia State. Who won three like three games last year? And they didn't just BYU. lose; they got dominated. Yeah, I mean, yeah, like it was atrocious. I mean, <laughs> losing BYU, and like it's not as if Coach Jones got fired because he had a pretty talented team at Tennessee that like went completely off the rails. I mean, Pruitt definitely had to like build some things, you know, up, and it felt like kind of you know sort of the culture there had completely kind of rotted out but Tennessee had built up a good run of kind of recruiting classes I mean Florida State's recruiting rankings are high as well but I've always kind of felt that that's a bit of a like mirage like they were they recruit really well at like wide receiver and corner and then they recruit nothing on like defensive tackle or offensive line so it looks a bit nicer than it is you know but Tennessee had put together some good recruiting classes and they shouldn't be this bad like there's just no reason for them to be 0-2 and, and looking like they're going to win two games this year. So SEC football, it just means more. <laughs> On to the question bag. All right, well, uh, Vinny Bartles had a question about Tennessee, which we've kind of sort of answered, but I, I'll read it in full so you can add to it. He wanted to know, how long until Phil Fulmer is coaching Tennessee? Does it happen this season? I don't think yes. Yeah. Yeah, I kind of think so at this point. I mean, this is full form. This is Phil Fulmer we're talking about. This is the man who became a head coach by pushing a guy out of the way when he was in the hospital. This dude is like, this dude's pulled off like two different coup d'etats at Tennessee in like a quarter century. I'm thinking third time's the charm. (laughs) I mean, but he also hasn't, what, he hasn't coached since, what, 2008? I mean, it's been over a decade since he's coached a game. Uh, there is someone coaching in the ACC who is two and zero who hasn't coached in a decade. Okay. Yeah, Mac. You know, good old Mac. Mac is back. Mac is back. He's having a grand old time. And, but you know, Fulmer's already the. Uh, um, you know, he is. Uh, he's about seventy years old. Does he really? He's the AD. Does he really want to keep coaching? I, I mean, that seems it, like. It, I mean, I think he wants more power. I think he resents any. I, I do think he's sabotaging everybody who comes in there, but I don't think he actually wants to be the coach. I just think he wants to preserve himself as 
the greatest coach in Tennessee history. No one else can win here. I, I just feel sort of like the Barry Alvarez thing, kind of, where like Wisconsin like loses coaches, and instead of him just being like, "Okay, you defensive coordinator, you can go coach the team," he's like, "No, I'm going to do it myself." Like I, I, I could just see Phil Fulmer like doing that, and then I could see him like if say they kind of like rallied a bit, and you know, like I don't know, maybe like at the end of the year they go like two and two or something. He can. Not that he'll, like, make himself the coach again full-time, but he just, you know, use it as, like, leverage to a point to have more control over whoever ends up replacing Pruitt. Yeah, I mean, like, no, look, normally... I'm just, if, you know what I'm going to throw out there? You hire a coach, and he's gone after a year and a half. That's not good for you, but it's Phil Fulmer, so... I'm just going to throw this out there. Maybe they can finally get it right and bring Lane Kiffin back. Yes! Yes! <laughs> Yes. All right. Michael Laurent wants to know, what's the official stance on Horns Down from the pod? I love Horns Down. Yeah, I, I hope th- they do it against non-Texas teams now, too. <laughs> <laughs> I think if you do something... The country should just start doing Horns Down. I mean, just, just in general, if you do something, it is everybody else's right to make fun of you, no matter what that thing is. So, yeah, of course. Yeah, horns down it up. Or, or you know, or horns down it down. But you know what I mean. Keep keep doing horns down. I, I don't think we did it enough, to be quite honest with you. I once, you know, I was hoping for maybe like two or three. I was actually flashing the horns every time we scored a touchdown in the stadium. I, I, was, <laughs> I, I was giving them a horns right back at them. <laughs> I liked what uh, Richard Johnson posted on Twitter. You can find him at RJ underscore rights. He wrote about Clyde Edwards Hilaire's horns down in the end zone. Excellent upright presentation and transition with wrist hinge to the horns inversion. (laughs) Kept it at the same level as well. This is not a passive action. You can't coach this kind of horns downing. Great technique for the young man. That's a man who hates Texas right there. We appreciate that. Okay. Steven at Stegaman17 wants to know, what will you remember most from the Texas game years from now? The goal line stands, the Burrow receiver performances, or something else? I mean, third and 17, obviously. But You know, as much as I'd like to say that I'm going to remember third and 17 or those goal line stands, which were amazing, but let's be honest. But let's be honest. In 20 years, I'm going to remember this as the game that we bitched about air conditioning. You know, that's <laughs> this will be the air conditioning game and the, and the band being up in outer space right? and the band being in a, not only was it really at the very top of the stadium, there's no lights there. So they were in the dark as well. I want to mm. add that point. That's important. The band was in the dark. <laughs> I'd, be, I'd be scared out of my mind. Like, oh, my God, I'm one of those people who, like, probably just couldn't resist looking over the edge just because and then, like, unnecessarily being like, oh, crap. <laughs> Now it freaks me out. But no, like I think all this is good. Like that's what, like the thing that makes college football cool is that there's so much lore to like certain games and like specific games. And in the NFL, you remember games with the exception of, like the Ice Bowl or something like that. You know, for the most part, you remember games as just the 1990 whatever AFC NFC championship game. Well, in college football, you remember games for being certain things or having certain crazy things, you know, associated with them. And so I think that's what makes this great is that there is kind of this lore to it of Texas turned 
the air conditioning off in the OSU locker room and the band was in the friggin' sky and and still OSU managed to go in there and put up five hundred something yards of offensive win. I also just think it's hopefully the beginning of a new era. You know, I think that that could be like the the lore that you're talking about is like the new era of LSU football. Yeah, that's yeah, that'd be great. If if in ten years we look back on this game, we're like, we only pass for four hundred and seventy-one yards. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, in ten years in college football, who knows? At this point, six hundred yards might be the expectation for passing yards in a game. <laughs> yeah, like part of I think part of the answer to the question is um, ask us again in like January to like see how the season ends because if the season goes amazingly well, it will be oh well that was the that was the launching pad for. A historic LSU season, and that's yeah. a good point because remember people were talking about the Texas Notre Dame game a couple years ago. I mean that's where the whole Texas is back meme came from, and it turned out both teams weren't that good. So remember the famous words of Winston Wolf. Vinny Bartles wants to know: Is it time to re-examine just how good of a coach Harbaugh is, especially on the offensive side of the ball? I, I don't know what's going on there. I mean, you knew that they were going to quote unquote struggle with Army's offense because they're really good, but there's no reason for them to be, you know, they average like 3.3 yards per play or something incredible like that. You know, because Oklahoma only scored 21 or and then I think 28 with the with the overtime last year, but they were at. I mean, they were running up and down the field on Army. It is that Army would go on these long drives and Oklahoma only had the ball like two, you know, like two times the whole game. Michigan had their chances. They had the ball. They just could not do anything on offense. And I just, I don't know why. I can't figure it out. Maybe maybe Patterson just isn't that good. Yeah, well, I think that's definitely true. Yeah, I, I, but also, like, yeah, I think the Oklahoma Army game was Army executed a near perfect game plan and just kept Oklahoma off the field. Against Michigan this year, Army didn't play their best game and forced overtime. That's they didn't, they didn't throw an interception at the yeah just, five yard line or whatever. I, yeah, Army didn't play their best and almost beat Michigan. Harbaugh's a guy that I've never been a huge Harbaugh fan. I think he picks fights that don't need picking. Um, you know, choose your battles, and it seems like he tries to pick like. He got there and he was picking fights with Nick Saban, which, okay, I get why he's doing it, but you know what? Beat Ohio State or beat Penn State more regularly. I don't know why they got Wisconsin this I don't know why anyone like, assumed that they were like change like that offense. Like, I mean, he is, like, as far as the offense goes. Like, I mean, the Harbaugh-Les Miles comparisons, I hate because Harbaugh hasn't achieved. But on offense, at least, it is true. Like, Les Miles' offense was going to be Les Miles' offense. Like, no matter how many times he said, yeah, we're going to change, you know, you know, run the spread now, whatever, it was going to be Les Miles' offense. Jim Harbaugh's offense is going to be Jim Harbaugh's offense. Like, people bought in that it was going to change because he hired Josh Gaddis, who, like, has never called plays before. And, like, I don't know, was co-offensive coordinator for Alabama for one year where he claimed that actually it was all him. And then Mike Loxley goes to Maryland and they're scoring, like, 60 points a game and Michigan can run three yards per play on Army. Yeah, buddy, definitely was you. <laughs> like, <laughs> I just don't know why any, like, assumed that, oh, definitely. Michigan's really going to change it now because 
they hired this one guy who's and because Harbaugh like mildly claimed, I guess that they were going to change it, but no, like yeah. this is this is who they are. Like he's not going to that kind of guy who has had his own offense for years and has almost always called his own plays is not going to just magically like throw it up. Like people could go to Nick Saban. It's like, oh, well, Saban changed. But Saban's a defensive coach. Like, when Saban, like, is, like, letting the offense change, he's not, like, letting go of his baby. His baby's the defense. And this is Jim Harbaugh's offense, and that's not changing. Yeah, I think the college football media kind of gets together every couple years and anoints another guy as, like, the greatest coach since, you know, I I don't even know, since Walter Camp. Um, And... He just strikes me as kind of an all-hat, no-cattle kind of guy. What is Harbaugh really – what skins does he really have on the wall? You know, he's been at Michigan now since 2015, and yeah, he you know he had a nice run at San Diego, but I, that's not even San Diego State. It's just San Diego. He he was good at Stanford, and then he you know, had one great year at Stanford, but he had two losing seasons out of four. I mean, it's just – he seems a lot like Jimbo Fisher to me. I mean, they're different coaches, their styles, but it's sort of like everyone just talks them up about how great they are before they've actually done anything. Or they just ignore the bad parts of their resume and be like, oh, that part doesn't matter. He's really good not- about parlaying a flash-in-the-pan season into something better. Yeah, and it's not that he's a bad coach. I mean, he's a good coach. I mean, Michigan's, you know, they're a 10-win team pretty much every year. But to put him up on this elite status, I, I just don't – I don't see what he's done – to be put on that tier. I mean, maybe this is just who he is. He's a, he's a pretty good coach. Also, maybe at some point, part, I think part of that is that college football media has big attachment to the helmet schools and the prestige programs. And college football was better when these teams are great. And in some ways, I, I do tend to agree with that. But at some point, you probably will have to admit Michigan is – this might just be who Michigan is. Michigan is not probably not ever going to be what they were with Bo Schembechler again. And Bo Schembechler never won a title. Yeah, that, that, that too. I mean, so they are like what Bo Schembechler was. No, but I mean, like they had some crazy, like they would lose like one game a year for in those years. And it's like, Mich- like should Michigan like lose, beat Ohio State two times in like 20 years? No. But Ohio State is the most recession-proof college football program there is. They're almost, like, never bad. And Ohio State has tons of reasons to be great. They're very good recruiting state. They're huge national brand to some degree. And it's like, man, there ain't a lot of great players in Michigan. It's like anything you could say good about Michigan, their rival does better than them. And so I think yeah. part of it with Harbaugh is that if Jim Harbaugh, who was great in the NFL, you know, and – was the, the Michigan guy who was going to resurrect the program. If he can only get them to, which is still good, like 10 wins a year, we'll probably have to admit that this might just be Michigan's ceiling. And college football media, I think, doesn't tend to like admit sort of that there is kind of a ceiling on these kind of old prestige schools that basically they grew up with, essentially. Well, isn't a lot of that, the, like you talked about, the amount of players, good players in Michigan – so yeah. we're gonna say the same thing with Tennessee. We'll say the same thing with Nebraska. There just there just aren't enough players there that they can just that they they'll fall into by being the the big school in their state. 
it, it doesn't happen anymore. Ohio produces a ton of good players. Mm-hmm. But do they? Louisiana produce so- produces a ton of good players. But you do know, those Georgia produce produces so much, a ton of good so players. Many, do those states produce so much talent because of that university? Every kid in Ohio dreams of playing enough Ohio State. Is that? I mean, is that a factor in how good a state is at producing talent? It's flagship university. Hmm. In in some ways, I think, but LSU still produced tons of great players when I was yeah. still like crappy. Yeah, they're um, all in the Pro Football Hall of Fame now. Yeah, like there were still tons. I mean, guys who didn't go to LSU because you know yeah. LSU like wasn't good that they still produced. But no, like yeah, like I agree. Like Nebraska is obviously. I mean, I think like most of the media has kind of like gotten around on Nebraska to like realizing that. Yeah, this is never really going to happen again, unless I don't know they brought steroids back or something. <laughs> I, I, I think Tennessee is a good example too. It's like Tennessee's great run was a huge product of context, like where Georgia wasn't good and Clemson wasn't good. I mean, like a world in which Clemson is this dominant like superpower in college football is not one that lends itself to success for Tennessee, yeah, especially like, one where like Georgia's good. Where did they go get players from? Can't go to Alabama, can't go to Georgia, can't go to South Carolina. They're locked in. And then also, while we bring up other programs that are doing well, how is Oklahoma so great? I mean, they basically own North Texas, but it really speaks to the level of those programs since we just played Texas. Texas does not have the same historic success as Oklahoma, yet it has, when we talk about Ohio State Michigan, Texas has every institutional advantage over Oklahoma, yet Oklahoma keeps winning. It, it has got to be the best program relative to their resources in college football history. One could argue well, it is the greatest program in college football history. Yeah, just 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 period. Outright. You could say that. Yeah, you could say that as well. But once you look at the resources, I think they clearly pull ahead of everybody. If you eliminate, like, John Blake, who is the one historic outlier at Oklahoma, basically any coach who is there for a discernible amount of time is one of the best coaches ever. Bud Wilkinson, a Hall of Famer, was there for—then they have, like, a couple coaches who are there for, like, like Chuck Fairbanks there for six years, wins 73% of his games. Barry Switzer is there for 16 years, wins 83% of his games. I mean, Bob Stoops is the third best coach in Oklahoma history. <laughs> Third. That's great. Incredible. Yeah. Lincoln Riley actually currently has the best winning percentage of any Oklahoma coach ever. Yes, it's like 26 and 4. Like, I think that's the thing with Oklahoma is like, man, they just nail head coaching hires. They just knock it out of the park. They almost never miss. And yeah, like, they, I think they do benefit too from the fact that they are close. Texas is like a huge state. I mean, not everyone's going to want to go to Texas. I think like that's like sort of the same thing with California or Florida. Not everyone in California is going to want to go to USC. Not everyone in Florida is going to want to go to Florida or Miami or Florida State. And I think so that's one thing that Oklahoma really has always benefited from. Like what what does Oklahoma benefit from that Nebraska doesn't? Oklahoma can go to Texas and yes, get that's exactly the main what it is. thing. And Nebraska can't. Yeah. There's just is- so much spillover from Texas that they can they can they can go in there and still get good players. 
So yes, that answers your question about Harbaugh. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's 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 not easy to win at Michigan. Okay, wrapping it up, Justin Evans wants to know which sequel, movie, or book would you like to erase from history? Boy, do I have an answer for this. Ooh, go for it then. Let's just say I do not acknowledge the prequels in my house. Um, two of my three children have never seen the Star Wars prequels. Oh, they're and, bad. And Rise of Skywalker better do something to redeem the, the two sequels we've had so far from the original trilogy. Yeah. I've actually really liked the two sequels, but I, I will admit that the prequels were terrible. I, I've liked the sequels, but mainly because, for all the reasons that everyone hates them, I think tearing down all the mythos and stripping it to its core and kind of creating a little bit of anarchy was a good idea. I, I see why people don't like it, but they're kind of radical. I kind of like the radical uh, approach to a sequel that The Last Jedi had. I actually, li- I actually really, really love Revenge of the Sith. I think the first two prequels are, I mean, like, Attack of the Clones is maybe the worst movie I've ever seen in my life. It's oh, just horrendous. Like, it's not a bad Star Wars movie. It's a horrendous film, period. But I actually really like Episode 3. I think that one's... I actually kind of like it. I think I might like it more than um, one or two of the original ones. Actually, maybe probably one. Like, Return of the Jedi, I actually might like it more than that one. Um, but as far as sequel that you'd want to... Erase. Um, for me, I, I think the, the sequel that I would get rid of is the two Jakes. There is no reason. There was never a reason to make a sequel to Chinatown, which is one of the most perfect movies ever made. <laughs> Wait, sorry. There's a sequel to Chinatown. Yes, there's, there's a sequel to Ty- no Chinatown. And here's the thing: is it's not a terrible movie. It's just why on earth are you making a sequel to Chinatown? And it's also just a very self-contained story. There was no more story left to tell. And just the existence of that movie gets me angry. So if I could get rid of one, it's the two Jakes. that I I just hate the concept of it. Nothing against Jake. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, I'm going to say I have a two-parter here. I'm going to say a movie that... The sequel that gets a hard time, but I think is actually very good, is Ghostbusters 2. I think it's still funny. I think the the chemistry is still there. It's basically the same storyline, like it's the same st- skeleton of a of a story, but with kind of with a different villain. I think okay. it's still wickedly funny. I love it. But the my answer is <laughs> my answer is Ace Ventura: When Nature Calls. That is one of the worst <laughs> movies of all yeah. time. Yeah, that, that and the first one's really not the first one's still I watched it the other day I, I still really like the first one I mean I, there was a little bit that I wasn't that into but for the most part the first one's still pretty good and the second one is is just awful so that's my answer <laughs> good answer you have one Jake um like I mean I guess um like some of the Hannibal ones like I don't think there was like really a need to like go beyond Silence of the Lambs probably a good call yeah, yeah that, that goes back to my, my other one because I don't know, I just can't resist it. The 2012 BCS National Championship game. <laughs> <laughs> Good night, everybody. <laughs> yeah.